0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Trump, TV, and Real Life. The date is June 2020. By any measure, Donald Trump has had a pretty good 15 year run. He extricated his billion dollar business again from bankruptcy. He had crafted and hosted a highly successful reality TV show. Oh, and there's that other thing yes, he won the presidency becoming arguably the most unlikely of the 43 presidents who preceded him. The expectation by this blog and a host of other pundits was that this streak would continue into 2020. And unlike many of the never-Trumpers, this prospect was not the worst thing that could happen, given the conservative policies and largely conservative governance that Trump has brought to the White House in the past three years, especially in contrast To the previous eight years that had gone on between 2008 and 2016. A string of victories like this would warp anyone's sense of self, but Trump is a man who names every building, golf course, airline, and even cologne after himself. It is still surprising that the New Jersey generals were not renamed the New York Trumps back in 1984. Yet this type of success also clouds the vision of the beneficiary of these many triumphs. There was a reason that the Romans put that guy in the chariot, reminding the victorious general of his mortality. Donald Trump's winning the White House came from four salient aspects. The first was identification of vast was of voters who were wary of the status quo. The order that Trump challenged consisted of embracing globalization, expanding regulation, and perpetuating a culture that was directly distilled from the academy professors' lounges and imported into institutions, including the media and the government. This was all what Trump represented as a challenge. None of the other candidates, even firebrand Ted Cruz, looked likely to challenge this system. The second advantage that Trump possessed was how do American people increasingly view their world? and by extension, their government. Trump looked at the most popular TV shows of the day, including World Wrestling Entertainment, Survivor, The Bachelor, and even his own The Apprentice, and realized that what would resonate would be grafting this reality TV concept onto a campaign. Thus was born nicknames for his opponents and a further push to outrageousness. Trump had appeared many times on The Howard Stern Show, It would not be lost on the number-conscious Trump that Stern had signed the most lucrative radio deal of all time by building on his persona as the original shock jock. It would also not be lost on Trump that the number-two person was conservative provocateur Rush Limbaugh. The days of William Buckley's highbrow firing line or the intellectual Dick Cavett show were long gone. Even the politically liberal Phil Donahue of the 1970s featured Milton Friedman and would provide an hour with the conservative economist. Trump knew Americans would not grant that kind of time anymore. Better Little Marco, Lion Ted, and Low Energy Jeb than a dissertation on deregulation or a detailed explanation of immigration policy. This president, and the theatrics itself were not quite a Trump invention. Teddy Roosevelt would pose over dead animals with his rifle in hand. FDR was in front of that fire for a reason. Reagan was a trained actor. And even the great Calvin Coolidge took a cringe-worthy photo wearing a war bonnet. Barack Obama would also change his speaking cadence depending on his audiences, dropping his G's when addressing African Americans. But Trump brought the concept home. One of the things that Trump understands from media consumption is that people remember the villain as often as they do the hero. And he would be both hero to the Republicans and villains to everyone else. During his presidency, he famously met with the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Was this a good policy? Well, a better plan would be to put pressure on China to withdraw support of the hermit kingdom. A better strategy would be to threaten to rearm Japan. But neither of these are good TV. And they handshake and photo op with Kim Jong-un were rating toppers. And in this one, Trump was the hero and the villain. He could pivot from shaking Kim's hands to degrading him, calling him Little Rocket Man. Again, Trump was both hero and villain in his TV show. The third piece And one of the more subtle aspects of his candidacy and presidency is the orthodoxy of many of his policies. Thinking about those 16 other candidates who shared the stage with him in 2015, almost all of them would have embraced some aspect of his program up until January 2020. Tax cuts, deregulation, withdrawal from Paris and Iranian deals, and most notably, his Supreme Court justice choices could be attributed to a Jeb Bush or a Scott Walker as much as to a Donald Trump. These conservative principles steadied the nerves of Philadelphia and Milwaukee suburbanites to enough to drive victory in 2016 and to start to keep his approval ratings from falling below a certain threshold. The fourth key to his victory was his opponent, Hillary Clinton's baggage, was so extensive, it looked like trying to pull a wagon with square wheels. Whitewater, the cattle futures trade, Travelgate, Vince Foster, the vast right-wing conspiracy, the Clinton Foundation, and most recently, the emails were well known to all of the voters. But rather than catalog them, Trump applied the moniker Crooked Hillary as a standard. Again, instead of trying to go through detail upon detail, or trying to negotiate exactly what some of those items were, he had that standard. Instead of a 20-minute explanation of how a Yale-trained lawyer could turn $10,000 into $100,000 in cattle futures, Trump summed up a narrative in less than three seconds. And because it was Hillary Clinton, crooked Hillary stuck. But it was not just Hillary's extensive past or Trump's schoolyard taunting Presidential elections are won on two different things. The first is fundraising, and the second is retail politics. Hillary was consummately terrible at both. It did not help the comparison that the two people who ran for the Democrats before 2016, including her own husband, were both excellent and strong retail politicians. These four items, his ability to identify disconnect with a great swath of voters, His ability to understand how Americans were consuming their media and indirectly their politicians. His actual policies that weren't quite as egregious or as quite as far right as originally portrayed. And finally, the weakness of his opponents were all the key factors for his 2016 election. And as of January 2020, it was lining up for a second romp. The shrill tone set by the likes of media star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her squad was providing a practical face for Trump to use as a contrast. The concerns about many voters about the scope and nature of government were not ameliorated by the concept of the Green New Deal or Bernie Sanders' popularity within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. The Democrats themselves understood this, ultimately eschewing a host of progressives for the seemingly safer Joe Biden. An American's appetite for Trump-style politics has not really waned either. Social media has simply accelerated the trend towards a more reality TV-type viewpoint. The Kavanaugh nomination, with its last-minute surprise of pitting Christine Blasey Ford against Brent Kavanaugh, was one example of this Democrats practicing the same theatrics. Trump's actual policy governance, when all of the punditry noise and smoke is cleared, will be seen as a conservative style accepting the avoidance of any discussion on U.S. debt and deficits. And in the nominee of Joe Biden, Trump has an opponent who can be beaten. Biden's first two runs floundered on plagiarism and blunders. In 2020, Joe Biden is suffering from some form of malady. Again, we do not take any glee in Joe Biden's sufferings, but we do acknowledge that they are there as much as the Democrats are trying to ignore it. Trump will not ignore it. So given this lineup, why is Trump in so much trouble? Everything should be lining up very well for a second term. The reason to any person who's been watching the news over the last four months is pretty obvious. Reality in the form of three different crises, has set in. Reality TV is not real. Of all the hundreds of thousands of words written on this blog and in the conservative historian books, these are probably the most inane, but it is the truth. Reality TV is not real. Consider the the world of reality TV. Within the WWE, the wrestlers already know who is going to win. In a real sport, such as baseball, the outcome is unknown. And when that is put into question, such as with Pete Rose betting or the Astros stealing signs, firings, suspensions are imminent. You are more than likely in sport to get away with a felony conviction than you are to cheat on the sport because that brings the entire integrity of the sport into question. And aside from maybe the Ottoman Sultan's and Mongo cons, one person does not get to choose... From 30 contestants vying for one's romantic and sexual favor, as they do in The Bachelor. When people are marooned on an island, they do not have camera crews covering every move and utterance. And you can't dial up medical assistance by simply looking at the camera saying, we're in a lot of trouble here, we need help, as they do on Survivor. And though there are interns, managers, directors, and vice presidents, most companies do not actually have apprentices. And those apprentices do not compete against 30 others, again, without producers charting and editing their decisions all along the way. From 2016 through February 2020, the United States did not have an overt crisis of the magnitude of the COVID-19 pandemic. Though most would argue that racial inequality is a crisis, it did not come to the fore for most Americans before June 2020. And the riots that followed were something unprecedented not seen since the Obama administration in 2015. The Kim Jong-un summit had an unreality about it. Though it happened, it was not really real to most Americans. COVID-19 was real. The murder of George Floyd by the very people who are supposed to protect us was real. The looting and the protesting And the rioting that followed was real. The reactions to the Floyd murder including both massive peaceful protests which are the vast majority of what happened and unfortunately the rioting and the looting were also real. Trump's reaction to all of these events were a continuance of treating them similar to a reality tv show. He did not recognize that the number of people tuning into the coronavirus task force were nervous about their health and wanted experienced, informed opinion. What they got was Trump fighting with the D.C. press corps, often over issues that had nothing to do with the pandemic. And while these fights were going on, the people with the answers that were sought after sat around in silence, inert and unheard. And then there were the tweets. After he had seen the ratings... On one coronavirus task force, Trump tweeted out a ridiculous note about having higher ratings than The Bachelor. During the rioting, his walk to Lafayette Park and showing a Bible while doing so was all to a staged attempt to project strength and purpose. Again, reality TV strength and purpose, but not real strength and purpose. It looked like the kind of idea a reality TV producer would have hatched. And even in the Trump show, even his ardent supporters, know he is not fundamentally a religious person. So it was not just cheap theater, but the wrong theater. His looting will lead to shooting tweet played directly into the hands of the Democrats who were elevating what happened to Floyd as the reason for the transformation so sought after by the left. Days after police had murdered a man, Trump was tweeting about firing on protesters. Restoring in law and order would have been a resonant theme with the vast majority of Americans, but more death, and this on top of COVID-19, seemed wholly inappropriate. In a television show such as House of Cards, when ratings are in order, the writers ratchet up the drama. Frank Underwood went from leaving a weak, philandering, corrupt, and cocaine-addicted congressman in his car to be asphyxiated, all the way to pushing an innocent young woman in front of a train. That is TV. That is is the way a writer will take a specific piece of drama, the drama of what happened early in the show, and then at the season finale, ratchet it up, build up the drama, turn up the heat. Trump, like those TV show writers, thinks that turning up the flame is somehow a good thing. If history has taught us anything, it is that in a crisis, people look for that adult figure for reassurance. This is not to say the American people are children. That is the view of many on the left. Conservatives believe in the ability of adults to make the most of their own decisions. But COVID-19 was out of the scope of all but the most learned. How is my health going to be affected? Is this going to kill my dad? Could it kill me? Anthony Fauci did not get ratings because he was a good show. He got them because he was informed. He was calm. He was reassuring. Watching the people who are charged with your protection killing unarmed civilians in broad daylight is horrific. Seeing the American people come together in solidarity to end police brutality is reassuring and somewhat calming. Watching a building burned down by rioters is frightening and horrifying if it happens to be your building. Viewing African American leaders condemn these acts and making statements such as, this is not what we are about, is reassuring and calming. At the end of the Civil War, Lincoln attempted to reassure the nation and the newly conquered South with calm words such as malice towards none and charity for all. Roosevelt's, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself is an intentional call towards calm. And of course, his setting in front of a fireside was absolutely deliberate, not some fearful uh, exposition from a podium or a staged piece in the Oval Office. No, Roosevelt delivered his speech from the fireplace, or another way to think about it is the hearth itself. He was putting himself into the bosom of American families and telling them that somebody was in charge and that somebody was there to help. I often castigate Roosevelt for many things, but not necessarily for the fireside chats. I actually thought that was a a really good idea. George W. Bush, throwing out the first pitch in the World Series in Yankee Stadium was not just some aspect of the Bush show, but rather to reassure the nation that 9-11 would not fundamentally change America. Trump's inability to calm these hotter emotions is just the first problem. The second is the logical aftermath response of any crisis by the left. And we are seeing all kinds of reform. We are seeing all kinds of overreach. We are seeing all kinds of ideas. Everything from the logical ones, which is reform the police department, to some pretty bad ones, which is funding certain organizations that will, in the long run, provide degradation and deterioration to the very people that they are trying to help. So, who is the voice arguing against this? The left is instrumental in playing upon the very human frustration to want to do something. In the case of the left, that something often means governmental programs that in the long term will be the detriment of the nation. There is no counter for this from Trump. Trump lacks both a vision for a post-COVID-19, post-George Floyd world, and he doesn't even see the reason for one. Ideas play across decades, even centuries. Trump is thinking in hour-long daily increments. Much good could come from the movement in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Police accountability in community, primarily as it extends towards African Americans, could be improved other areas of the black community could be re-examined, especially as relates to education. But there is reason for grave concern. Talk of transferring funds away from policing to the failed liberal programs of the past 50 years is all of a sudden back in fashion. A rewriting of quasi-fictional ethnic history already begun in 2019 could be accelerated. The pandering to the black community's worst elements, from criminals to race baiters, could be the prominent voices emerging from this movement. And against these forces, we, as conservatives, do not have a prominent voice to articulate a better way out of these crises and into something better for all Americans, including African Americans. It is the opinion of this blog that the presidency has become far more potent than is suitable for limited, separate power governance. In some regards, Trump's rhetoric diminished the quasi-royal patina that often ensconces the modern presidency. But we are encountering crises that could lead the nation towards bad decisions, and too often on the issue of race, conservatives are mooted. During 2001, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, George W. Bush managed to wage war on the perpetrators while protecting the safety and rights of the peaceful Muslims living within the nation. In his address on September 20, 2001, Bush provided his vision. Quote, Tonight, we are a country awakened to danger and called to defend freedom. Our grief has turned to anger and our anger to resolution. Whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Unquote. Anybody hearing that, anybody seeing his face, knew again, this wasn't for the TV cameras, this wasn't some George W. Bush show. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. But it was not all tough talk. Quote, All of America was touched on the evening of the tragedy to see the Republicans and Democrats join together on the Capitol singing God Bless America. Unquote. And as far as the Muslim citizens within the United States, Bush did not fall into the same trap as Roosevelt regarding Japanese Americans. Quote, I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. Unquote. Even Bush, castigated for his lack of intellect, could articulate a vision through and out of the crisis. Trump seems unable and unwilling to do the same. And this, not his opponents, not his policies, will cost him the 2020 election. Thank you.